This is New Testament survey. Just to give you an idea of what we're doing, the goal is not for me to teach you every verse like we did in Hosea. The goal is to give you a good overview of the New Testament and to help you understand what led to the writing of the New Testament and then carry that into the actual New Testament and go book by book and get a general overview of every book of the New Testament. Okay? Um, this is a smaller class, which is nice, because if you have questions, please ask for questions. Okay? If you go and you read, if you're a brand new Christian, and you just open up your Bible and you start reading the book of Genesis, and you work your way through reading and studying the Bible from Genesis, and you work your way all the way through the Old Testament, you get through the end of Malachi and you start reading Matthew. By the time you get halfway through Matthew, you're going to be a little confused. Because you're going to realize that the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And for some reason, after Malachi, they start writing in Greek. Why? 400 years will do that to a conquered people. Nah, yeah, that's true. You'll get into the New Testament. And the Romans are now in control of Judea. Where'd they come from? That is true. But where did they come from? How did they get there? Why are they there? Why did the New Testament writers choose to write in Greek rather than in Hebrew when the Old Testament writers wrote in Hebrew? All of these questions are answered in a 400-year period called the intertestamental period. It's a vital period of time that you need to know about, so that's what we're going to talk about today. We're just going to talk, and I'm going to give you a general overview of 400 years of history. Now, I said a general overview. <laughs> there are some areas of this time period where we talk about the Ptolemies and the Seleucids where you just have king after king after king after king, and their names all sound very familiar or very similar. I'm just going to give those to you in a chart, okay? <laughs> and we're going to summarize those because those get really confusing, okay? But we'll go through this. Wow, it would help if I turned this on, wouldn't it? There we go. Intertestamental history. Okay, so what is the intertestamental period? If you read scholars today, you'll find scholars talking about a period known as the Second Temple Period. And they date that roughly 538 to 70 AD. They call it the New Te uh, excuse me, the Second Temple Period because one, the Jews don't have a second testament to their canon. They don't have a New Testament. So to say it's the intertestamental period might be offensive to the Jews, so they change it to the Second Temple period. This roughly describes the time period between the rebuilding of the temple in Ezra and Nehemiah and the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. The intertestamental period that we're going to be talking about extends from the end of the Old Testament, uh, when the final events of the Old Testament occurred in Nehemiah 13. You remember they went back to the land, they built the wall, and they found the books of the Torah, and they began to implement those laws. Those are the last actions, the last events of the Old Testament. Those occurred somewhere around 446 to 400, depending on who you're reading. The final prophecies of the Old Testament occur in Malachi. Those are written somewhere around 424 B.C. After Malachi, there are no prophets in Israel. All the prophets die. 
And you have a time period after that where there are no prophets speaking. God is done talking to Israel. He's done giving revelation. He has nothing else to say. There's 400 years of prophetic silence from Malachi to Luke 1 in the first narratives of the birth of Christ. It's 400 years of absolute prophetic silence. This is the time period when the apocryphal books of the Old Testament like Maccabees, Judith, Tobit, all those apocryphal books you find in the Roman Catholic Bibles, this is the time period those books were written, when there were no prophets. It's one of the biggest reasons why we reject them as Scripture. So the intertestamental period extends from about 400 B.C. to 6 B.C. Hey, I have a question. Those other books, do they, do, do, do they have enough history in them to be worth reading? Some of them do. We're actually going to be quoting one of them. First Maccabees is I was actually. Going to say the Maccabees. Yeah. Got all kinds of stuff. First Maccabees is helpful. We're going to be using that today. Second Maccabees, not so much. Third and fourth Maccabees, definitely stay away from. Um, but first Maccabees can be helpful, and we're going to be looking at that today. So some of them have historical value. If you go back to the Council of Trent when they officially declared the canon, that was the reason they included those books. Even going back all the way to Jerome, they included those books because they saw them as being valuable historically. And it would be good for the edification of the church. They didn't view them as being scripture in the same sense Matthew was scripture. All right. First Maccabees, right up your alley. First Maccabees 9.27. And there was a great tribulation in Israel such as was not since the time that a prophet appeared unto them. This is talking about the Maccabean revolt under Antiochus IV. We'll talk about him today. And he's saying, look, the tribulation during this time period is worse than we've ever had it since we had a prophet here. Which means there was no prophet during this time period. Which means God is not speaking. God has nothing to say in this time period. This is 400 years of silence. But silence does not mean that God is not acting in this period. There's a lot that happens in 400 years, as Lance pointed out. A lot happens in this time period, and a lot of it affects how we understand the New Testament. 400 years, God set the stage for the events of the New Testament, and he made it possible for the New Testament to be written and to be spread the way it was. Okay? Any questions so far? Comments? Concerns? Is this going to be online? Yes. The notes, I can make the notes available to you. Yes. Is this going to be on the test? Yes. <laughs> I like that question. Yes. All, all of the above. I am going to make the, the slides in a note form available. I don't have a printer here. Our printer died on us during the move. So I don't have notes to hand you. But I will email you guys. We have a list of everyone who signed up. So I will email you slides so you have them. Okay? So don't worry about killing your hand this morning. Try and keep up. All right. We're going to talk about empires of influence. Grab your Bibles. Go over to the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 2. I guess it would help if I got my Bible out too, huh? You have I wish that was true. Daniel actually prophesies about the time that we're going to be looking at. And he tells us about these empires that are going to rise up and rule. Who would like to read Daniel 2, 31 through 40? Anybody? Anybody? I got it. 
through 40. Yes, sir. Oh, you king, <clears throat> we're looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of the statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly with light and thighs of bronze its legs of iron, its feet partially of iron and partially of clay, to continue looking until a stone that was cut without hands and it stuck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like shaft from the summer threshing floor, and the winds carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole, earth, the whole earth. This was the dream now that we will tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beast of the field, or the field of the sky, he has given them into your hands, and because you... To, and cause you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. After you were, after you, there will rise another kingdom inferior to you, then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Then there will be a fourth kingdom, as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things. So, like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these pieces, break all these in pieces. Okay, thank you. I only have one eye, so it's, it's okay. It's all right. All right, so Daniel's in captivity. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Nebuchadnezzar goes to Daniel and says, Daniel, I've had this dream. Tell me what it is and tell me what it means. And the dream was of a statue. The statue's head was gold. The golden head of the statue was the Babylonian Empire. And the Babylonian Empire was going to fall. That was the first part of this prophecy. I already said that. Who is going to destroy Babylon, according to Daniel? The Medes and the Persians. That's our next empire. That's our first empire that we're going to talk about. We're not going to talk about the Babylonians. I'm going to assume you guys know that. Yeah. Yeah. So, let's talk about Persia. Persia was led by a guy named Cyrus. Cyrus was the king that actually invaded Babylon. Anybody remember how he invaded Babylon? They, they were drunk. They were using the, uh, the, the articles they should not have been using, drinking wine out of them. And they just snuck right on in and took them over right after the hand, over the wall to the kingdom. Yeah. So the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar was throwing a party, <laughs> and the king, Cyrus, drains the Tigris River. He actually diverts the flow of the river. And he marches his troops down the dry riverbed under the walls of the city. And he takes the city without force and conquers it in the night. Cyrus actually enters into Babylon as a hero. They welcome him as a liberator. And he begins to rule the Persian Empire from Babylon. And it was during his reign, during his first year in Babylon, that he issues a very important order. The order is, 
all the gods that had been taken out of foreign lands by the Babylonians are to be returned back to their lands. Let those people go back to their homes, let them take their gods, build their temples, and do whatever they please. That includes the Jews. And the Jews are now given permission to go home and rebuild their temple. You can find this in Ezra chapter 1, 2 through 4. I'm not going to go through and read all that. Basically it's saying, look, go back, rebuild. And in fact, in Ezra 6, he says, we'll actually pay for it. The Persian Empire will give you the money and the resources that you need. We'll take the gold from Babylon and we'll send you home with it. And all the articles from your temple can go back with you. There's a Persian king doing this for some reason. The Persians had this idea that people should be allowed to practice their religion as they see fit. And so they let them return back home. Well, Cyrus dies around 530, 529. And his son, Cambysius II, takes over. Cambysius is not so interested in the Jews. He's interested in military might and power. And he goes on a crusade to expand the Persian Empire. I'll show you a map here in a moment that shows you how far he expanded. And he goes, and the first thing he does is he wants to uh, take over Egypt in 525. And he does. He marches into Egypt, takes it over, and they make him pharaoh. They actually didn't put up, put up much resistance. The populace welcomed him, and he becomes Pharaoh. And from there, he goes on to conquer a good portion of the known world, from the Middle East, North Africa, all the way out to India. And he expands the Persian Empire. He dies in 520, and his son Darius takes over. Does the name Darius sound familiar? Sounds like a coin. Sounds like a coin. Darius is mentioned in the book of Daniel. I think he's also mentioned in Ezra and Nehemiah. Darius was also interested in helping the Jews go back and rebuild. He allows the Jews in 520, another group, to go in and continue to rebuild. Remember, when the first group goes, they meet some resistance. The locals weren't very happy they were there. And so they stopped building, and Darius says, no, no, you're allowed to build. Keep going. But Darius wasn't much of a military commander, and he wasn't really interested in doing a whole lot with the Jews. Under him, Persia reached its zenith. He was a really good economic leader. He built roads and infrastructure, and he made it possible for commerce to occur in the empire. But he wasn't interested in conquering people. He wasn't interested in expanding in that sense. He did try to go into Athens one time, and it didn't work out so well for him. He actually ended up losing at Marathon. He wanted to go back and get his revenge, but other things kept him from it, and he died before he could actually take revenge and take out the, the Athenians. He eventually dies, and his son Xerxes takes over. Um, anybody remember the name Xerxes? Where have you heard that before? Esther. This is King Ahasuerus in the book of Esther. Um, he did have an army left over in Greece. And we learn in the book of Esther that he built his, form, his battle plan while he was partying, while he was drinking. And he goes out to try to attack the Greeks. And like his dad, he loses badly. Um, he was defeated in 479, and he runs home with his tail tucked between his legs and says, 
this whole military commander thing is not for me. I don't want to do this anymore. I just want to stay home and party and live it up. And he was known for his profligate and immoral lifestyle. He was eventually murdered. Some say by a jealous husband. Others say by a member of his court. We don't really know, but he eventually dies. Um, and his son takes over. His son's name is Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes is the guy who gave Ezra and Nehemiah both permission to go back. Ezra went back to the land to take over as the leader in the land. Nehemiah goes back to try to rebuild the wall, which he accomplishes. Um, which, that's what I just said. So why is this important to you? Why are we talking about this when we're talking about the New Testament? This is important to you because God used Persian kings and Babylonian wealth to start rebuilding the temple in Israel. When you open up the book of Matthew and you start reading about the temple, it's there because of the events that happened in that 400-year period of silence. It's because of Persian kings that this was possible. And the Persian Empire would remain the primary force in the world until about 330 B.C. Until this other nation shows up. Well, let me show you a, a map here. This is the Persian Empire. Everything that's colored is where Persia took over. They started here. Um, this is the beginning under Cyrus. Cyrus expands and he takes over the pink, he takes over um, the green, and the orange. His son, Ambitius, takes over Egypt, and Xerxes takes over Thrace. It's a pretty big territory. That was most of the known world at the time. They were defeated by who? Greeks. Daniel calls this the, the, the bronze period. And bronze, by the way, was a primary metal they used in making their weapons. Alexander the Great shows up. He was a Macedonian by birth. His father was, anybody know? Philip of Macedon. He was Macedonian. Philip of Macedon um, set up a league of Greek city-states. Before Philip, they were all kind of separated. And there was no unity among them. And Philip of Macedon goes in and he unites most of the city-states except Sparta. Sparta, for some reason, doesn't want to join. Well, Philip dies right after he forms this league. And his son Alexander takes his place. His son Alexander was trained by Aristotle. He was culturally a Greek, but nationally he was a Macedonian. And he loved Greek culture. He loved the Greek language. He loved the Greek culture. He loved everything about being Greek. And he viewed himself as the apostle of Hellenism. And he wanted to Hellenize the known world. And his conquests were all about spreading Greek thinking and Greek culture. Um, this is all the stuff I just said. So, so uh, he started doing that. And he started with the city of Troy. 
And he goes in and he conquers Troy. Well, the Persian king was still around. Persia was still there. The Persian king is a guy named Darius III. He doesn't really take a lot of concern about this little upstart in Greece. It's not a big deal. So he puts together this army of Greek mercenaries and Persian cavalry, and he sends them out to arrest Alexander. And it almost works. Alexander almost dies. Um, Can I get ahead of myself? Uh, Alexander almost dies, but he survives, and he defeats the Persians, and the Persians run home. And from there, Asia Minor Minor is opened up to him, and he has free reign. And he begins going city after city after city, conquering cities. And he starts here in 333, and he conquers Damascus. He actually conquers and takes captive Darius III's family. He conquers a whole bunch of Persian wealth. And he just keeps marching. Once he finishes Damascus, he turns south and he goes to the Phoenician coast. The Phoenicians were known for their commerce and their trading on the Mediterranean. They had several coastal cities where they would trade across the Mediterranean. And Alexander saw that as a great way to make some money. And so he walks into the Phoenician territory and most of the cities just let him walk in. And they do nothing. One city, the city of Tyre, decides to put up a fight and they actually hold him up Um, for seven months. He destroys the entire city. The populace flees to a fortified island. So he takes the rubble from the city, uses it to build a land bridge, and then walks over the rubble and takes out the city of Tyre on the island. I don't know why I have that there a second time. Okay, there we go. He then marches down further south, and he goes through Gaza, and he goes to Egypt. And he marches into Egypt, and just like the people before him, he walks in, and they make him Pharaoh. He installs an Egyptian as the head of the state, because he doesn't want to stay in Egypt. He wants to go on and continue to conquer the lands. So he installs an Egyptian in charge of the state. But he takes one of his Macedonian buddies and makes them in charge of the army and the military. So he can control the military. He controls the entire country. He builds the city of Alexandria. Alexandria is going to become very important when we talk about the Septuagint and translating the Old Testament into Greek. It's where a lot of early church fathers, people like Origen, Alexander, they all come from here. He leaves Egypt, and he goes to Jerusalem. And when he gets to Jerusalem, something interesting happens. They meet him at the gates with a book. Anybody know what book they met him with? They handed him a book. It was the book of Daniel. And they said, hey, we want to show you something. Josephus, the early uh, Jewish historian, Here's what he said. And when the book of Daniel was showed him, wherein Daniel declared that one of the Greeks would destroy the empire of the Persians, he supposed that that himself was the person intended. Now that's interesting, because modern scholarship will tell you 
that the book of Daniel was written somewhere in the time period of about 100 B.C. These events happened around 330 B.C. Which means it had to be written much before that. Daniel wrote his book somewhere around the 500s. This proves the early dating of the book of Daniel. And it proves that Daniel was prophetic. And he got it exactly right. Um, Alexander then went on and he continued to conquer people. 331, he has another really big victory. And he went on to take out Persian, uh, Persian territories. Babylon, Susa, Persepolis. Those two, Persepolis and Ecbatana, were extremely wealthy. And when he takes over those two, he inherits a whole bunch of Persian wealth. That was the Greek Empire at the end of Alexander's reign. Notice anything familiar about this? It's almost exactly the Persian Empire. A little less of Egypt, and I think he made it a little further out into India. He conquers most of the known world. And what's interesting about Alexander is that Alexander brought the Greek culture and Greek language to all of those people. They all spoke different languages. When Alexander marched through, their primary language, their lingua franca, was Greek. Everybody spoke Greek and read Greek. Uh, Walter Kaiser. The Orient had experienced and frequently adopted Hellenistic ways of thinking and acting. Not only had his conquest changed the face of the ancient Orient and marked a new era of history, he had erased the old cultural and political boundaries. The rise of Hellenistic gymnasiums, stadium, theater, odium, odium is a place for musical performances, lyceum, that's a place for lectures, and agora were to be seen not only in the Greek colonies, but also in many of the other cities in the ancient Near East as well. Sculptors, poets, musicians, playwrights, philosophers, and debaters were appearing as part of the regular landscape. Greek was destined to become the official language, and Greek thought forms were providing new formats for grappling with old ideas. This is vital. This is why your New Testament was written in Greek, and this is why your New Testament can spread so rapidly throughout the world at that time, because everybody could read it. And God used a Greek pagan to pull it off. Now, Alexander dies. He dies at a young age. He dies at the age of 33. He dies of fever. And there's no one to take his place. Because he was busy conquering, he didn't have any children. He didn't have any offspring. No one to follow him. And so four of his generals, you don't need to know their names, um, Antigonus, Ptolemy, oh, yeah, there's four of them, you don't need to know all their names, there's two that you need to know, Ptolemy and Seleucids, and we'll talk about those two. These four generals now start vying for power, and they were all in charge of separate regions, so they had their own regions that they controlled, but now they wanted to take over and become the new Alexander, and so they're kind of fighting with each other to gain power. And the two, there, let me move this aside. There's one, 
There's two, there's three, there's four. The two you need to know about are here. The Seleucids and the Ptolemies. The Ptolemies were in Egypt. The Seleucids were part of the Syrian Empire. Okay? Now, I told you before, there's a whole bunch of kings here. And it's a long list. So I'm just going to give them to you in a chart and summarize it. Because it gets confusing. Here's the chart. I'm going to go to this side. Left side of this chart is Egypt. Ptolemy I is the king that was under Alexander. He's in Egypt. These are his descendants, Ptolemy II, Ptolemy III, Ptolemy IV, Ptolemy V, Ptolemy V. You see why this gets confusing? Mm -hmm. Try to keep track of those in your head. That's going to be fun. Okay? That's their lineage and how they work out. On the other side of this chart is Syria. And it starts with Seleucus. He was the general under Alexander and all of his descendants. Antiochus, Antiochus II, Seleucus II, Seleucus III, Antiochus III, and he goes on. Okay? That's their descendants. And they're all vying for power. In the middle is Judah. And this tells you who controls the land of Judah at that time. So under the reigns of Ptolemy I through Ptolemy III, the Ptolemies, Egypt, controlled the land of Judah. In 198, the Seleucids, these guys under Antiochus III, they take over Judah. Is that an easy way to think about that? Does that help? Rather than trying to run through all this history? And that's where we're going to pick up. We're going to pick up right here under Antiochus III. Because Antiochus should be a familiar name to you. Anybody recognize that name? Yeah, Antiochus the Fourth is the one you really know. But we need to start with Antiochus the Third. So, Antiochus was a Seleucid. Antiochus the Third, and the Ptolemies, when they were in charge of Israel, they were fairly kind to the Jews. Uh, they were okay with them being Jewish to a certain extent. It's like, yeah, okay, I'm okay with you being a Christian. Just don't talk to me about your Bible. It's kind of like that attitude. I'm okay with you being Jewish, just don't flaunt it in front of me. And they didn't really give them any kind of leeway. It was like, you're Jewish, great, but you need to be an act like you're Greek. Antiochus III was very different. He shows up and he's very kind to the Jews. He's very kind to the Jewish religion. He recognizes the Torah as the official law of the nation of Judah. He exempts the entire population from taxes for three years. You might start to like your leader if he does that for you. He also exempts, he also reduces taxes after that uh, by a third for the whole population. Just cuts their taxes by a third. And then he exempts all of the temple workers in the temple in Jerusalem of taxes forever. He just says, you guys owe no taxes. Nice guy. And he allowed the Jews to live as Jews, and he didn't try to mess with them. But Antiochus looks to his northwest, and he sees a rising power. He sees Rome is getting bigger and stronger. And they're kind of knocking at his gates. And so he decides in 198, he wants to go and try to deal with Rome. And he sends an army up there to fight the Romans, and they lose. 
and they lose badly. Um, Antiochus is forced to give up some things. The Romans say, look, we'll, we'll let you keep your power, but you need to give up your war elephants, you need to give up your navy, and oh, by the way, your son, Antiochus IV, the heir to your throne, he's coming with us. And they take Antiochus IV as a captive, and they take him back to Rome. Antiochus III returns back to his kingdom without his son, and for 12 years, Antiochus IV stays in Rome and is being trained by the Romans. And he's learning about Roman ways, he's learning about Roman thinking, he's being trained by their best. I guess the Romans had the idea, if we train him and teach him how we think, then later he won't be an enemy. Eventually, Antiochus III dies. Twelve years later, Antiochus III dies. And Antiochus IV returns back to his kingdom and takes over as the king of the Syrian Empire. And he takes on the name Antiochus Epiphanes. It means the manifest one. It's the manifest of his humility. That's what it is. He's humble. The Jews would eventually change his name for him because they love to play on words. They change his name to Antiochus Epimanes, the madman. Don't you love their sense of humor? He was somewhat like Alexander in the sense that he was very interested in Hellenizing, but he wasn't interested in Hellenizing in a nice way. He wanted you to become Greek at all costs, and he'll do whatever it takes to make sure you're a Greek. And he was not very nice to the Jews. He appointed a new high priest named Jason. Jason was in the lineage of priests, so this wasn't too offensive to the Jews. What really offended them about Jason was that his brother, Onius III, was the high priest before him. So how did Jason get Antiochus to remove his brother? He paid him. He goes to the king and says, look, I really would like to be the high priest. I'll pay you a tribute every year if you just make me high priest. And Antiochus goes, sure. Onius is kicked out. Jason becomes high priest. The danger there is if the king is willing to give you the spot for money, he'd be willing to take it from you for money. He becomes high priest. I just said that. Jason shares Antiochus' desire to Hellenize Judah. He either shares it or at least he's willing to be complicit with it as long as he has power and money. And they begin implementing policies to encourage people to become Greek, like building gymnasiums throughout this, the land of Judah. Why would a Greek gymnasium be a problem for the Jews? Anybody know? Greek gymnasiums had people training in them. How did the athletes there train? They were able to do it or something like that, right? Completely new. To the Greeks, this was normal. To Jews, this was horribly offensive. And Jason, a Jew, is having them go and build these gymnasiums and train completely nude. And a group of people within Judah called the Hasidim, the holy ones or the pious ones, begin to kind of confront Jason and say, Jason, this is a bad idea. 
And they begin somewhat of a little revolt against Jason, saying, we don't like what you're doing. Stop this. We're not going to give up being Jewish just because Antiochus is here. Jason was eventually replaced by Antiochus. He was replaced by a guy, by a guy named Menelaus. How do you think Menelaus got his job? He bought his way in. He paid Antiochus IV for the position of high priest. High priest at this time was essentially the ruler of Judah. If you were a high priest, you were essentially king. He pays Menelaus. Menelaus was not a Levite. He was a Benjamite. He had no right to be a priest. So not only is Menelaus now trying to force them to become Greeks, but now he's not even supposed to be in that position. This is a non-Levite serving as a priest. And the Jews are just getting more and more offended. Um, okay. Yeah. Jason ends up leading a revolt against Menelaus, but he had to pick his timing. Antiochus IV decides to take his army and leave. He leaves to go south to Egypt. He wants to shore up his southern border because the Ptolemies are still there. And so he takes his army and he marches down to Egypt. And while he's gone, Jason builds up a group of people and he leads a revolt in Jerusalem against Menelaus and tries to remove him. Antiochus gets into Egypt and he's met by a legate from Rome. The Romans don't like the Seleucids. They don't like Antiochus. And so they partner up with Egypt. And the Roman legate shows up in Egypt and goes to Antiochus and says, you either get your troops out of this country right now, or you are going to be an enemy of Rome. And Antiochus says, well, that's a problem, because now I'm going to have the Romans to my northwest, and I'm going to have the Egyptians to my south. I'm in big trouble. And Antiochus says, okay, I'm out, and he backs out of Egypt. And as he's backing out, he hears news of this revolt that's going on in Jerusalem against his guy, Menelaus. And he realizes he has another problem. Not only does he have the Ptolemies to his south, and he has Romans to his north, but now he's got a large portion of his own population that's revolting against him. And now his focus is entirely on Jerusalem. And he sends a general back. Okay, this is all at once, so there you go. He sends Apollonius back to Jerusalem. And Apollonius goes in and he kills everyone who's revolting. And he just slaughters people. I think Josephus said there's some one million people who died in this attack. This was a ruthless, barbaric slaughter. And he cracks down on Judaism. He doesn't want them to remain Jews. And Antiochus says, we're done with this whole Judaism thing. You're going to become Greek or else. And they start implementing laws. He sets up Greek gods around the country and starts forcing them to worship these Greek gods. Okay, put yourself in the position of the Jews. You just got exiled. You just had watched your whole nation get destroyed a generation ago for this very thing. 
And now you have this Greek emperor coming in telling you, you must worship these false gods. He sent Greek philosophers to re-educate the population and to get them to think more Greek. He sets up an idol of Zeus in the temple and he sacrifices a pig in the temple of Yahweh. This is what the Jews call the abomination of desolation. Completely disgusting. Now are you getting the idea of why they called him the madman? He outlawed the Hebrew Bible. And he destroyed all the copies that he could find. He wanted to wipe out Judaism. And another one that's going to be... Okay, there we go. Jews were also required to participate in all the forms of worship of these false gods. Like sexual immorality and orgies to Bacchus. Antiochus wasn't done. Jews were forbidden to observe the Sabbath. Forbidden to practice circumcision. Forbidden to observe any feast day. And if they were caught doing any of the above, they were executed. Scholars aren't real sure why Antiochus was so cruel to the Jews. But his cruelty didn't have the results he was hoping for. He was hoping that all the Jews would say, you know what, I'm done with this whole Judaism thing. We'll just do what they want. That's what he was hoping they would do. They had other plans. This brings us to the Maccabean revolt. I've been talking for a minute. You guys have any questions? Some of you, some eyes are glazing over, I think. Any questions? Concerns? Yes. So, so this is an ignorant question, but so you talk about Judah, but where was Israel? Where is that? Yeah, so good question, because when we were in Hosea, before the, the exile, we had two nations. We had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, Israel and Judah. Now when I say Judah or Judea, I'm just referring to the remnant that remains there now. The people that returned. Okay? Good question. Alright. Maccabean revolt. The Jews are not happy with Antiochus. They, they are done with this guy. And there are some events that really spur this revolt. Antiochus sends an emissary. We don't know his name. He sends an emissary to this little town called Modin. And this emissary goes to Modin and sets up an altar to a pagan god and tells the, the inhabitants of Modin, you must now worship this pagan god. The people of the town, not all of them were really happy. The emissary goes to the town's priest and he commands the Levitical priest there to perform the sacrifice. Um, Modin, if you want to know where this is, here's Israel. There's Bethlehem. There's Bethel, if you were in my Hosea class. Where's Jerusalem? I just thought. There's Jerusalem. Modin is right there. There's Jerusalem. That's about where you are in the graph, on the map here. This priest's name was Mattathias Maccabee. Mattathias was a descendant of Jerob. He's listed in 1 Maccabees 2.1. His family is listed in 1 Chronicles. 
this guy was a legitimate Levitical priest. And according to his according to Josephus, his grandfathers took the name of Hasman. Mattathias' descendants will be known as Hasmonians. Have you heard that term before? Hasmonians. This is going to be a big term later. Mattathias wasn't real happy about this emissary commanding him to sacrifice to this pagan god. And he promptly refuses. And his refusal is in 1 Maccabees 2, 19 through 22. Here's his refusal. Even if all the nations that live under the rule of the king obey him, and have chosen to obey his commandments, every one of them abandoning the religion of their ancestors, I and my sons and my brothers will continue to live by the covenant of our ancestors. Far be it from us to desert the law and the ordinances. We will not obey the king's words by turning aside from our religion to the right or to the left. This was a death sentence for Mattathias. He knew it and everyone around him knew it. His five sons knew this was a death sentence. And because it was a death sentence, not everyone around um, was so committed. And another Jew steps forward. We don't know the guy's name, but he steps forward and he offers the sacrifice for Mattathias. And gives in and says, it's better for us to obey than to die. And <laughs> Mattathias um, gives a very clear response to this other Jew. <laughs> 1 Maccabees 2.24, when Mattathias saw he burned with zeal and his heart was stirred, he gave vent to his righteous anger. He ran and killed him on the altar. At the same time, he killed the king's officer who was forcing them to sacrifice, and he tore down the altar. This was his first warning shot to Antiochus. We're not putting up with this. He then turns, actually 1 Maccabees goes on to say, thus he burned with zeal for the law. He then turns to the crowd that's gathered and he says, my sons and I are going up on that hill and, and we're going to have a secure fort up there and we want you guys to join us and we're going to get rid of these Seleucids. We're going to end this oppression. And he and his sons go about doing that. And they start attacking uh, Seleucid officials, all the officials of Antiochus. They start killing them. They start tearing down altars, destroying idols. And they just start causing all sorts of trouble. Again, I'm not going to give you all of their names and go through that long list. There's a list of them. Here they all are. These are all Hasmoneans. When you hear Hasmonean, just think a descendant of Mattathias. Each one of these fought, actually when you get to right about here, you start getting into the period when they actually won their freedom. They won their freedom in 142 BC. Now how did this little revolt win their freedom from Antiochus? Did they defeat the Seleucid Empire? They called on their good old friends Rome. And in 142, the Roman Senate declares the Hasmonean rulers and the people of the Jews as the friends of Rome. And now as the friends of Rome, the enemies of the Jews are now the enemies of Rome. 
And so now Antiochus really has a problem. He's got Jews that are growing in power in Jerusalem, and he's got the Roman Empire marching in, into his back gate. And in 142, the Seleucids leave Judah, and they go back to their own country. And under the influence of Rome, the Hasmonean rulers expand their control and influence in Judah. Here's a map. Mattathias started with the green, and with Roman influence, they spread all the way out and gained new territories and new control. And each of these guys was essentially the ruler and the priest at the same time. Now, Rome was still in the background providing their influence and giving them a whole bunch of authority. Um, this is the state of affairs around 76 B.C. Under Alexander Janius. When Alexander dies, he has two sons. Hyrcanus II and Aristobulus II. And these two sons are both competing to be high priests. Rome preferred Hyrcanus. That's who they wanted. Aristobulus preferred himself. But Hyrcanus was weak, and he wasn't strong enough to really assert what he wanted, and his brother ends up taking over and becoming high priest. So Hyrcanus does the logical thing. What does he do? He goes to Rome, and he gets the Romans to declare him as high priest. And not only do they declare him as high priest, they send an army into Judah to take over. And in 63 B.C., Pompey enters into Jerusalem to remove Aristobulus and put Hyrcanus as the high priest. <clears throat> Hyrcanus thought, I'm just going to get some power. But what he did was he invited the Romans to take over the country so he can get power. Now the problem here is that the Romans weren't interested in keeping a large army in conquered territories. They didn't want General Pompey to stay there. They wanted him to go to other lands. So how do they maintain control of the Jews? Well, they put Hyrcanus as high priest, and then they find a client king who can take over for them and who can rule in his place. And they find a guy named Antipater. Antipater was, would rule now as king, and Hyrcanus would be the high priest. Because Hyrcanus can't rule. Antipater would do what Rome wants, and Hyrcanus would get the power that he wants. Win-win situation. Well, everything was going just fine until these two guys end up dying. And a, a guy, Antigonus, starts a revolt. And Antigonus takes power by force. And he tries to be high priest and king at the same time. Well, Antipater's son, anybody know his son? You've heard of this guy, Herod the Great. He's supposed to be in line for ruler. 
And here's this guy, Antigonus, taking his spot. What do you think he does? Goes to Rome. And he goes to the Roman Senate, and he says to the Roman Senate, hey guys, um, you guys put my father in charge. And there's this guy over here, Antigonus, who doesn't even know who you are. He doesn't even care who you are. And now he's ruling. Are, are you guys going to do something about this guy? And the Roman Senate tells Herod, build up an army and go remove him. And we'll support you. And Herod does just that. He goes, he builds up an army, and he returns. And after three years of conflict in 37 BC, he takes over the country and he becomes king of Judea. This is the territory that he had when he took over. Um, when Herod dies, he has three sons. And his territory is divided among his three sons. And I'm going to move over here again. One of his sons was Herod Philip. Herod Philip controlled what's in pink or purple. The other one was Herod Antipas. Uh, he controlled the green and this was given to Archelaus. The blue here was the Decapolis. The Romans controlled that. And that was kind of the division of the land and who controlled what. So when you get in the New Testament, you find this guy's ruling here, this guy's over here. That's why. Because Herod the Great's sons took over after he died. In 6 AD, Archelaus, the guy who was controlling this area, Galilee, Samaria, he is removed by the Romans because he's weak and ineffective. And the Romans decide we're not going to have a client king there. We're going to have Roman governors. Who are some Roman governors that you know of? Pontius Pilate. Because Herod's young son wasn't very good. Are you starting to see how this connects to the New Testament? Okay. Good question. Herod, um, let me go back to this map. Herod did start building a temple, I think, almost immediately after he started vying for this ability to do this. His biggest concern was trying to get the Jews to agree to it because he had to tear down the old temple. The temple that was built under Nehemiah and Ezra, he had to tear that down and he had to get them to believe that he would actually build a new temple. And so he started importing goods from the north and started getting cedars of Lebanon and wood and he actually built his capital city here in Caesarea he was a fabulous architect and I don't remember when he started the temple but it took him about 40 years to build it and I think he died before it was finished but Caesarea you can still go today and see the ruins of Caesarea um, I think Josephus said, you have never seen anything beautiful until you have seen Herod's temple. I actually have a picture at home of an architect, not an architect, an archaeologist's rendering of Herod's temple. It's an amazing structure. So the temple in Jerusalem? Mm -hmm. The base that you see, that foundation, there was a much smaller foundation. Herod actually built onto it and expanded that foundation. What sits on top of it now is a mosque. 
Um, in 70 AD, the, the Romans came and wiped everything out, and then the Muslims, that's a long history, but um, the Muslims built their mosque there, but the foundation, the western wall where the Jews still pray today, that is part of what Herod built. Any other questions, comments, concerns? Anyone confused yet? A couple people shaking their head. You are going to be giving us all, all the information. Yes, I'm going to I'm going to send you a copy of these notes. I was going to have a handout for you this morning, but I don't have a way to print it, so I can't give you a handout. So I will email you this the slides, and I am recording this, so we'll have the recording as well. Okay. Any other questions? No? All right. Let me close us in prayer. Father, we thank you so much. Uh, we thank you that um, you work sovereignly and providentially throughout history. Uh, you laid the groundwork for the New Testament. You made it possible for the New Testament to be written and made it possible for us to be able to enjoy it today. And you did that through um, people like those that we've been learning about this morning. And we just ask that uh, you would help us to learn more about your word and that we would live in accordance to it. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.